everybody, Jonathan Doe here, and today I have a very special episode for you guys. This episode is to promote an upcoming documentary that I'm working on with Andrew Dodge called If Trees Could Talk, A Conversation with Terry Hobbs. And the significance of this episode is because of the significance of this day. Today is May 5th, 2023, making it the 30th anniversary of the Robin Hood Hills murders, also better known now as the West Memphis Three case. And on May 5th, 1993, three uh, eight-year-old boys uh, would go out riding their bikes through the neighborhood, playing in the woods, and they'd go missing. And the next day, on May 6th, their bodies would be found, uh, stripped naked, hogtied, and viciously murdered. And um, this shot, this sent a shockwave through the community of West Memphis. Who did these horrific crimes to these, these three innocent boys? And ultimately, three teenagers became suspects. Damian Eccles, Jesse Miskelly, and Jason Baldwin. And they ultimately would be, would be charged for the murders. Um, with many suspecting that this was a satanic ritual. At the time of this, uh, this case, when it happened, satanic panic was, was at, a, at a rise. Um, but as the years went on, people started to uh, speculate that maybe Damien Eccles, Jesse Miskelly, and Jason Baldwin did not commit these crimes. And uh, the start of a movement called... Uh, Free the West Memphis Three started to gain traction, and it actually started to get um, celebrity backing with people like Johnny Depp and um, the Dixie Chicks uh, advocating to get the the West Memphis Three freed, and ultimately that would happen. Uh, the three boys, now men, would be offered an Alfred plea, which they would take, and they. Uh, would ultimately be released. And so that bears the question, if the West Memphis Three did not commit these crimes, then who did? Which is a question that to this day has not been answered. Many people have pointed the fingers at different individuals. Um, there's the infamous Mr. Bojangles. Um, Mr. Bojangles was a homeless man who around the time of the murders, before before after the murders, after the mur murders obviously, um, he entered a Bojangles restaurant covered in mud and blood, um, but that person's identity was never confirmed and they left before um, they were able to be questioned or captured or anything like that. Another individual uh, that's often had fingers pointed at them is Mark Byers, the stepfather of Christopher Byers, uh, one of the boys that was murdered. Um, and another individual, the subject of our documentary is Terry Hobbs. Terry Hobbs is the stepfather of Stevie Branch, another one of the uh, eight-year-old boys who was murdered. And with this documentary, Terry Hobbs invited me and Andrew into his home and, and allow us to ask him questions. And there was nothing off the table. Um, he allowed us to ask him anything, um, especially the different accusations that have been made about him. 
And so what I present to you guys today is a short interview that I did with Terry Hobbs, just covering the basis, the basics of this case. Um, and I'm sure some of you will be frustrated that I don't dive in deeper and ask him some of the more challenging, hard-hitting questions within this specific interview, but that is going to be left for uh, the documentary. And I want you guys to know that I did ask those questions, and if you want to see them answered, then um, support this documentary, support the Patreon, which will also be released today, and um, and and hopefully one day we will eventually one day get to the bottom of who committed these horrific crimes. But without any further ado, um, here is my interview with Terry Hobbs. And if you want to dive deeper and further into this case and hear more um, from Terry, especially related to the accusations that have been made against him, um, make sure to support this documentary and check it out when it comes out. Thank you and enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Uneasy Train Explorers Club podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Doe, and today I'm sitting at the table with Mr. Terry Hobbs. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, and thank you for having me. Um, so for people who uh, are brand new to the case and who you are, can you give us kind of an overview of, of what, uh, why we're here? I can. My name is Terry Hobbs, and I am one of the parents, step-parents, of one of the three little eight-year-old boys that was murdered in West Memphis, Arkansas in 1993 uh, by three teenagers that was convicted and sentenced. So what can you tell me about um, you meeting Pam and, and forming a relationship with her? Okay, well I met Pam uh, in a restaurant that I owned and she, uh, I ended up putting her to work as a, as a waitress. So, you know, one thing led to another, and, you know, Pam was, a, to me, she was just as cute as she could be uh, when I met her. So, one thing led to another. We ended up in a relationship, ended up in a marriage. Stevie was a year and a half old at that time, and we, you know, we grew as a family, and life went on from there. Uh, what can you tell us about what your relationship with Pam was like and, and raising Stevie? Uh, I had a good relationship with Pam. You know, we we got married and uh, we moved in the restaurant. It had living quarters in it and two bedroom living quarters. And while well, Stevie moved in there with us, and, you know, we just, we became a family. And then... Um, so you you uh, were the stepfather of Stevie, but you and and Pam actually had a daughter together. What can you tell us about her? We did. Uh, we ended up moving to West Memphis, Arkansas, and Pam and I had a daughter together. Her name's Amanda, and she uh, 
Stevie was four years old at the time Amanda was born. And so, you know, that's the family growing. Um, how did Stevie and Amanda get along together as siblings? Well, they did good. You know, he, he used to sit and hold her when she was a baby. And, you know, as she grew, you know, she, she didn't make it but to four years old when Stevie's life was put in, in danger and he ended up, he died from this. And, but as a brother and sister, that's how they acted. Yeah. So he was a good big brother to her? He was. Um, moving into 1993, what was Stevie like as, a, as an eight-year-old? Well, in school, he, he was on the principal's list. Now, to do that, you had to study hard, make good grades, and they had a list they called principal's list. That's for the, the, the kids that studied and made the good grades. And at home, we would help. I would sit down with Stevie and explain what he didn't know or learn at school and help him and... I wanted him to stay on that principal's list, so I spent time with him on his homework. Um, Stevie was friends with two other boys in the neighborhood, uh, Christopher Byers and Michael Moore. Uh, what can you tell us about them and their parents? Well, I don't know nothing about their parents. Mm -hmm. I really don't, never have. I didn't know them, you know, and so I can't say nothing about the parents. But as far as uh, Mike and Chris, I only knew of them when they would come around our home. And they did that every once in a while and they wanted Stevie to come out and play with them. And we did that, we let them. Michael would carry his badge and act like he was a policeman. And Christopher, he was uh, kind of quiet. And come to find out he had a, a little fling for my daughter who wasn't but four years old. <laughs> So, but other than that, you know, every time they'd come around, we'd treat and just let them act like kids and have fun, and we enjoyed it. Um, well, moving to um, to the events of May 5th, when was the last time that you actually saw uh, Stevie? I seen, the last time I seen Stevie was May the 4th. I didn't see Stevie, not at all. May the 5th, of course, I was an early riser. I'd get up and go to work early and come home early in the afternoons. And, and then I could see and visit with everybody. But on the day of May the 5th, I did not see Stevie. Um, so what is your last recollection of seeing him, spending time with him um, on May the 4th? Well, and now that depends on the weather. If the weather was nice... <clears throat> was nice we had a 33,000 gallon in-ground swimming pool in the backyard that's where we lived in the swimming pool we did <laughs> everybody did because it was nice mm -hmm. so was did he like to go swimming was he a good swimmer well he wasn't at first but yeah he caught he picked up on swimming real quick and he enjoyed it Mm -hmm. He'd go off the uh, diving board, he'd you know, come off the slide and run into that pool and take off, just have fun. So the last time that you saw Stevie was uh, May the 4th. What can you tell us about the day of May the 5th, you waking up, what, 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 how did you spend your day, what were you doing? Well, like every other morning, I'd, 
I had a job. I run an ice cream route for an ice cream company in Memphis. You know, we lived in West Memphis, so I'd drive across the river and uh, go do my job on the ice cream route and come home. Um, where was Pam at that time? Pam was in the homes, and she was cooking supper that, at that time. Mm-hmm. And my daughter was back in, I believe, in Stevie's bedroom watching TV. Um, so you get back home, and Pam's making supper. Um, it's my understanding that later that night, Pam had to go to work. Um, so what what happened uh, moving on with that day? Well, uh, we when I come home, I asked her, you know, I, I heard Amanda, so I went back and checked and see who was in Stevie's room. So it was Amanda. And Pam was cooking supper, so I walked up and asked her, I said, where's Stevie? She said he went to ride his bicycle with Michael, Michael Moore. I said, okay. And she said he's supposed to be home at 4.30. I said, okay. So we waited till 4.30. Uh, Stevie never did come home. So uh, Pam had to be at work at 5 o'clock. So she went ahead and got ready for work. And uh, on our way to taking her to work, we went by the Moore's house to see if we could see Stevie or see his bicycles. And we did not. So I went ahead and took Pam to work, and I told her I would, you know, on my way home, I'd go back by the Moore's house and see if I could see Stevie. And I said, and I went by his, their home on my way home and didn't see him. He wasn't there. Um, so then you go home. Um, and Pam's at work, what do you do after that? Well, I, you know, probably stand in the driveway looking up down the streets. And so, you know, we, me and my daughter, we walk around a little bit in the neighborhood looking. And so, and we get in the vehicle and we ride around a little more looking. So I told her, I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm going to take you over Bobby's house, David and Bobby's. And... I, I did, and I, and I asked if I could, she could stay there, and I asked David if he'd go help me look for Stevie, and we did. That's David Jacoby? David Jacoby. So you and David Jacoby get in the car, and you're driving around looking for, for uh, the boys? Right. Right. Um, at some point, you have to go pick Pam up. Um, so what's the transition from being with the Jacobys and then going in and picking up Pam? Well, you know, for, I don't know, if, now Pam gets off work at 9 o'clock, uh-huh. so the time, I didn't keep up with the time, but from the time that I picked David up, you know, we had drove around several streets and places uh, looking for Stevie and, and Michael, and I think somewhere in this timeline, when I, I went back by the Moore's home, that... uh. Uh, we figured out, and Mark Byers comes walking across the yard because he lived next door to the Moors. Uh, and he asked if we seen Chris, and we said no, but we're looking for Mike and Steve. He said, well, I hadn't seen them. And I think then is probably when we figured out they all three might be together. We wasn't sure, but we was thinking like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this happened... And and me and David riding around, uh, 
And it come time for Pam to get off, which was getting close to nine, so I went back and picked Amanda up to David home and went and picked Pam up. And when you go and you pick Pam up and you tell her that you still haven't heard anything from Stevie, uh, what was her reaction? Oh, she was, she really didn't know what to think, but the first thing she said was, he's dead. You know, and I just didn't understand where that come from. So I said, Pam, don't say that. He ain't dead. We, we'll find him. But, you know, we didn't. Um, so what happens after that later in that night? You pick up Pam. Do you go back to the Jacobis to pick up Amanda? No, I'd already picked Amanda up before okay. I picked Pam up. Okay. And then we go back by the Moore's home and ride into the neighborhood. We don't see Stevie, so we go home. Pam changes clothes. Pam calls her dad and mom. And so they come down. And then from that point on, David, I think David came by and to see if we had found him. We hadn't. Pam's dad and mom was there, so we got in two vehicles and we started riding around. You know, see if we could find them. During this time, while we're riding around, we see Mark and Melissa Byers riding around in their truck, and they're looking for Chris. So none of us found none of them. Uh, it's my understanding at some point within the within the night that you guys uh, file a police report. What can you tell us about that? We did file a police report. The Moors or uh, Dana Moore. When we were, when I was at her home, when Mark Byers come over, uh, she said she was going to go in and call the police and you know let them know. And Mark said he was going to go call the police and let them know. And I asked Dana, I said, would you let them know that Stevie is probably with Mike, uh -huh. and they're probably all three together. We didn't know, so she said that she would, and. Uh, you know, we just kept on doing what we was doing, looking around. Um, so you guys spend the night looking around, looking for the boys, and you you don't end up finding them. Um, what happens between May 5th and May 6th during that period of time? Okay, so we spend the rest of the night, I'm talking all night long, Riding around, we at, there was a time when an older guy told us he'd seen some boys going into the woods, and he called it Robin Hood. We didn't know nothing about Robin Hood. But he, he pointed to the woods in that direction and said, them woods, Robin Hood. So uh, me and David, when we were together, would just ride around, and we, uh, we met up with uh, Ryan, which was Chris's brother, uh -huh. and he had a couple friends with him. So Ryan said that he would go check the manhole uh, that was, I guess there was a manhole out there in them woods, and I didn't know. But so me and David just kept on riding around. Then when her mom and dad came, uh, we spent the rest of the night uh, riding around, and then we made three trips to the police department, asking them during the night uh, if they had heard anything, they told us no, but if we, if they did, they would, you know, pick them up and bring them home. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this happened all during the night. Three different trips to the police department, us walk, walking around. We had walked Robin Hood, Woods, uh, I don't know how many times. 
but we was, you know, and when we finally, after the boys were found on May the 6th, you know, and months later, we never, me and Pam never knew where they was found. Mm -hmm. It took us months after the fact before we could get ourselves to go out there and see where they was found. But we, we, there was a day that we did. It was months later. Um, so on May the 6th, when the boys were found, uh, what were you guys doing and how were you informed that the boys were found? Well, we were still out looking for them, riding around, stopping here and there. And I believe we stopped at the school. We seen some people there, so we stopped in there and, and was talking with them when someone pulled up and, and said they found some boys and they told us a location. So we get in our vehicle and we head to that location where they found the boys. Um, what was the scene like when you guys pulled up and, and made it over to that location? There was a few people out there, and, and there was crime scene tape, uh, and there was some uh, police officers out there. At that point, did you have any idea uh, what kind of condition the boys were in? Did you think that they were still uh, alive? Did you speculate that they might, might have been harmed? Well, at that point, we weren't even sure that they had found anybody mm -hmm. and until... I walked up and talked to Gary Gitchell was standing up there. But also at that point, we wasn't even sure that they were our kids that was found. We didn't know. Um, so you you get out of the car, you walk up and you see see the crime scene tape. Do you, what do you do? Do you walk up to a police officer? Do you ask what's going on? I walk up to Gary Gitchell. He's standing at the head of the tape. And I walk up, and he asked me, he said, who are you? And I tell him who I am. He introduced himself, and he, he looks at me, and he says, Mr. Hobbs, there's been a homicide. I said, what would you say? He said, these three little boys have been murdered. And I just couldn't believe that. But again, at that point, we didn't know it was Stevie, Mike, and Chris. So I just sat down on the ground, you know, and... I felt bad because I really didn't know, but I kind of, kind of figured it could be, because three little boys we spent all night looking for them, uh -huh. and but we and we really didn't know it was them at the time, but it turned out to be it was them. Uh, when you showed up and you were up at the crime scene, uh, did you see? Was there body bags? Did you see anything like that, or was it hidden away from you guys? No, we didn't see, and it wasn't right at the crime scene itself. They had it blocked off, you know, probably, I don't know how many feet from it, but it wasn't right at the crime scene. Um, so how much longer from showing up at that crime scene did you get notified that it was indeed uh, the boys you were looking for? Well, I'm not going to say they knew. They probably had a better idea idea of who it was than we did uh -huh. but it and so they the police come by our home one time and ask us for pictures that they could identify the boys by uh -huh. and to and I, I and they probably knew at that point and we probably knew within our hearts that that was probably them but we wasn't sure until they finally told us yeah it was them
Um, what was your reaction when you guys did get conf confirmation that it was uh, your son that, that had been part of this homicide? Well, it's like any other parent. You know, you go into shock. And you cannot believe this. And we don't know, we didn't know how it happened, why it happened. And still don't know why today we found out some of the hows in the trials, but we still, we heard people speculate on what they think or why they think it happened, but we don't really know for sure why. Mm -hmm. And you spend, a, until you, until it's confirmed why, and I don't know who would do that, who would confirm it, but you spend the rest of your life wondering why. And even today, I wonder why. You know, what could three eight-year-old boys do to teenagers that would make them kill them? Um, so what, from, from when you guys got confirmation that it was indeed Stevie and, and the other boys, when did you guys get notified that there were three suspects? Well, it was weeks later. You know, I guess they were, and probably at that point they didn't know either. The police didn't know either at that point, so they had to start an investigation. And you know, and it was probably weeks later before we were notified of an, an arrest. Um, and what did they tell you when they notified you? Did they specifically mention them, or? Yeah, they called their names. I mean, they told us. Uh, to meet them in court and, and give us a date to be there that they, they were they had arrested three teenagers and they was going to charge them with these crimes and they would be they would be arraigned on this certain date and they wanted us to be there and we showed up and was there so when you actually started when the investigation began and the trials began um, what was it like uh, being a part of that process well, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's, it wasn't fun. Uh, you're drug into something that you, you have no control of, and you're drugging something that it's out of your hands. You're drugging something you don't know anything about. And you kind of feel helpless, you know, because you have the rest of your family sitting there. And you see, the other two boys' family sitting there. You see, you know, curious people sitting everywhere. So you don't really know what to think. And of course, we was living the shock life at this time. Didn't know what to think, didn't know what to believe. You know, you, I've, there's newspaper articles that come out every day about it. There's uh, all over the TVs was something about it every day. Mm -hmm. So you, you take them to, on top of every radio station in the, that part of the country, was talking about it. And then, you know, in West Memphis, that's where we was living at the time it happened, you know, you, we ride around, there's billboards in front of churches or church signs, you know, pray for the families, you know, and, you know, and all kind of things that would just overwhelm you. You know, and people being nice and people recognizing you.
from that, you know. So you don't really know what to think. You just go up with the flow, if you will, and wait until the court date, and they set a court date, and uh, two separate trials. So, and that's what you do. You, you try to make it the best you can. There was a, a victim's advocate who come out and visited with us after this. And, you know, there's people offered all kinds of support and help. And you just live that life and, until you get into trials. What can you tell us about the first trial? Well, I can say this about the people of Corning, Arkansas. Good Southern folks. It's, you know, they, they come up there and just shower, showered us with love. And at the time, you're in this part of your life, you know, grief is starting to set in. And the stages of grief, when they, uh, when they appear, you know, there's, there's many different stages of grief. So you deal with each one as it gets here. And some of them last longer than others. And, but you're still going to have to deal with them. You're not going to escape that. But the people, uh, you know, they, they put us up, put all the families up you know, in motels, just, you know, didn't cost us nothing. They opened their restaurants to us, didn't cost us nothing. Uh, you sit there and you go through the trials and they're sitting there behind you, you know, showing support. And on top of being curious themselves, you know, so I don't have anything bad to say about corn in Arkansas they was they was good what about the second trials second trial was in Jonesboro Arkansas same thing happened there they had us rooms to stay in they had breakfast dinner and supper meals places that they wanted us to go and eat and the people of Jonesboro they stepped up and they shined and you had to love it um, how could you, how would you describe the three suspects at the time? For people who are not familiar with them, what can you say about them? Well, there was three teenagers, you know, and which one of us has not grown up being a teenager? Mm -hmm. I remember as me as a teen, I had long, a mullet. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, you know, I love my rock and roll music. And I wasn't rebellious, but I just, you know, I just love life, and who looks at it, you know, any other way than, you know, I'm you know, a teenager just out here growing up and, you know, enjoying themselves. That's what we were. So what they were, you know, looked a little bit the same. Uh -huh. But again, when you sitting in the trials, we heard things about, you know, the mental stability of some of them, you know, and. So it, it leads you to believe that maybe their childhood wasn't the best, or maybe there was some issues in their homes that needed addressed. We didn't know. And it's only speculating to say anything about them other than they were just three teenagers. Um, so for those who are listening right now who are, this is the first time you're hearing about the West Memphis case, the three teenagers that 
were speculated was uh, Damian Eccles, Jesse Miskelly, and Jason Baldwin. Um, what can you tell me about each one of them and their behavior during the trials? Well, I can say the first trial, uh, Jesse Miskelly's trial, he couldn't look up. He sat there with his head down. Uh-huh. And I'm, uh, he's the one who confessed. He's the one who implicated the other boys. And he had a role in it just like they had a role in it. He tried to lessen his love, his role, but at the end of the day, I think it come out where his role was just as cruel as the rest other two boys. So he, I'm sure he felt bad. And so he confessed like seven or eight times to different people. Uh, now the other two boys, uh, Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin in the Jonesboro trial, uh, Damien Eccles would sit there and wink at you, smile at you, blow kisses to you, and it's just like it was a fun time for him. Jason Baldwin would look down a lot and he'd look up every once in a while. And But Damien, uh, he acted like there was no shame in it. Um, did you have any doubt in your mind during these trials whether they were guilty or innocent? Well, I didn't know. Uh-huh. I only knew what the police was telling us, and yes, I believed the police department. You know, and, wh- and I'm, let me say this, when we would go down and when they would, the police would want us family members to come down and talk to them, you know, and this devastated them too. Because when you go in and talk to an officer, he's sitting there, he's got tears in his eyes. Uh You know, there's something there that makes you think, you know, these folks, they really believe these boys did it too. And here we are trying to hold back tears, you know, devastated. So, yeah, I I didn't know, but we we sat through the trials, and the longer you sit there, uh, the more you hear. And we heard things and seen some pictures. And, you know, there was times we had to get up and walk out of the courtroom because of the graphics of the pictures. And, and, but at the end of the day, the more you sit there and listen, the more you found out. When um, the three teenagers were ultimately convicted, did that bring any sense of closure or make you feel... Uh, give you any peace at all uh, considering what happened? Probably not. I'm going to say probably not. You know, it's just it's the beginning of their new life in prison and but you're left with, you know, trying to move forward. Uh-huh. And how, and it, it is, it's a battle. You just don't pick up and walk out. Of course, say, okay, it's over with. No, sir. It just begins. Your new life has just begun, and it is horrific. It is horrible, it's terrifying, it's traumatic. It's everything bad that you can think of that you have to get out here and deal with Uh and try to make it, and it's not easy. Um, After some time of the boys being incarcerated, um, there started to be a... uh, switch in 
um, the public's eye of who they think actually uh, committed these crimes and um, attention switched over to uh, to Mark Byers. What can you say about that that process, that switch happening? Well, this is, and I remember that, uh, but I can say this, the night of May the 5th, the morning of May the 6th, when we were walking together, uh-huh. riding around our vehicles together, Mark and Melissa was out there. That was his wife. And me and Pam was out there with her parents and David. And then uh, Ryan Clark, his Christopher's brother, was out there with some of his friends riding around. You know, this happened all night long. Uh, so as they point the finger at Mark, I knew better. I was even asked, do I think Mark had it, anything to do with it? And I told him no. Watch the Geraldo show. Seriously, I can't emphasize that enough. In the Geraldo show, I mean, it, the crime had just happened. Everything was stuck in our brain that we had done that night. There's, there's movements in that, of that night that is talked about on the Geraldo show. Your whereabouts, whose whereabouts. And as Mark sits up there and says, well, I seen Terry and Pam and his, Jackie and his wife, and you know, that's Pam's dad and mom. Uh, well, we seen them too, riding around during the night. So no, I, I, I knew at the time, you know, what, what they was trying to do to Mark and I even one time went on a radio show in Memphis and spoke, or I called in, I didn't go on there, I called in, they was discussing the case, they were discussing Mark. And so I called, not knowing if they was gonna answer, but they did. And I told them my name. And, you know, what my uh, part of this was, you know, I'm family. And of course they knew. And they let me speak. And so I let them know that, you know, as I sit here and I hear you guys beating Mark up, Mark is just as innocent as I am, you know? And I'm speaking up for Mark. And no, Mark didn't have a thing to do with it. We was out there in different times, different areas, doing what everybody else was doing, looking. Um, during this process where where public uh, opinion was kind of switching, there was kind of a movement building of free the West Memphis Three, meaning free the three teenagers. Uh, what's your earliest memory of this happening and what was your reaction when that started? Well, uh, I remember when that started and I believe Damien's wife started that, Lori Davis. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you know, on this side, you have to wonder, well, why you want him free? Uh-huh. She believed him to be innocent, but deep down, I bet you she knows he's guilty. Now, to get her to admit that, probably won't happen. Uh-huh. It's like his girlfriend, Dominique Tears, back then. I promise you, and I felt, have felt this for 30 years, she knows more than what she talks about because she was Damien's son. I mean, girlfriend, they had a son together and Damien wanted to kill that boy as a sacrifice. That was said. 
So, yeah, I believe Dominique knew, and uh, and I believe Lori Davis started this free of the West Memphis Three. When uh, attention shifted away from Mark Byers and and onto you, and people started pointing a finger at you, accusing you of uh, committing the crimes, how did that feel, and what did was that a shock to hear? Oh, <laughs> yeah, it was a shock. I was. You know, I was at work, and of course, prior to this happening, coming out on the airways, you know, the defense for Eccles and them had been following me around, uh, talking to my neighbors, calling me names with my neighbors, because my neighbors would come and tell me. Uh-huh. And one neighbor brought me a card, it had Ron Lax's name on She said, Mr. Hobbs, she's in her 90s said, Mr. Hobbs, this man come by my house and asked me, did you know you're living next door to a child killer? And she said, he give me this card. She gave me his card. It was Ron Lax. And I forget her name. I said, and I called her by name. I said, well, I said, now you know better than that. She said, well, you don't seem like bad to me. <laughs> 90 something year old. <coughs> Excuse me. And I said, well, I'm not. She said, I don't think so. So, but anyway, stuff like this had gone on, you know, and, and I'm at work. I just started a new job. And when I started this new job, I didn't say a thing about West Memphis. I never do when, when I, and matter of fact, this was the only job I had after my name started surfacing. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, I just started this new job, getting to know everybody, getting to know the customers. It was at a lumber company in Memphis. Uh, when all of a sudden, my my name gets busted out on every TV station in town, and there's like four, maybe five of them in town. Why, well, you know, all the the men at work approached me and says. Uh, what's up? And I said, well, this is some of the games they played. And, you know, and so after talking to them a while, they they could see, you know. And so my boss pulled me aside and he said, I'm going to ask you one time. Is there anything to what they're saying? I said, no, sir, there ain't. He said, I believe you, and I won't say nothing else about it. And I didn't lie to him. I didn't lie to nobody and still haven't. But yeah, they turn, they go from uh, the three convicted to Mark to me, and now there's a new one. So this is how the games that a defense team plays in a PR firm. And that's what, that's all they've been doing. There's nothing to it. The police has tried to tell them that Terry wasn't a suspect. He's still not. So and it, they act like it doesn't matter what the police say. It's what they think, what they say. Um, with the Free the West Memphis Three movement gaining traction, it started getting a lot of attention with celebrities, people like Johnny Depp, people like Henry Rollins, and it ultimately led to a lawsuit with you and uh, the Dixie Chicks. What can you tell us about that? Well, it's just the Dixie Chicks started using my name and calling me names on their websites, and they have uh, millions of followers. 
And so, you know, to me, they was just helping spread the word, and which was all lies. Uh-huh. You know, as like I said before, you know, if you lie on Fox Network, you get in trouble for it. Uh-huh. You get sued. You can lie out here on somebody else, and you know, and it's still a lie, but it doesn't mean nothing in the courts. So even with documented lies, it doesn't mean a thing, and that's what they had. My attorneys told me, he said, Terry, well, there is a lawsuit here and you need to do something. I said, well, do it. And they didn't. It didn't happen like they thought. So now in 2023, um, are you still facing uh, people making accusations, criticizing you? How has, how has these uh, statements that have been made affected your life today? Well, you know, true or not true when the statements are made and they're not true. Mm-hmm. It tarnishes you, your character, your life. And even just this week while we're sitting here doing this, I get a, a message from a lady mm-hmm. who just called me a bad name. And because of all this stuff that's been said, that happened this week and I've got a phone full of them. Mm-hmm. that I have saved over the years. Uh, so, and there's nothing you can do about it. Unless you work at Fox Network, then you can sue them. But, or you get sued. Mm-hmm. You know, but as I hear on my level, there's nothing you can do about it. You have to take it. You have the opportunity or choice to read or not read them. You can delete them. And I do all three. Well, uh, this week you invited me and Andrew Dodge into your home to work on this documentary, If Trees Could Talk, a conversation with Terry Hobbs. Um, And in this documentary, we talk a lot about the accusations that that have been made about you. And I was wondering um, why you decided to invite us into your home and and have this conversation and make this documentary. Well, I kind of look at it like this, uh, Jonathan. As long as the echo side is out there picking on the state, uh-huh. throwing people's names out there, and they've been on mine for 16 years, uh-huh. and they expect me to sit here and keep my mouth shut, I have a little problem with that. You know, and I have for years kept my mouth shut. Uh-huh. And then as you all reached, have reached out to me, and I, I looked at this like, you know, Hopefully this is a chance that I can get out here and share some truth with with the folks and let them know just because the Eccles bunch say what they say, there's no telling who they're going to pick on next after, you know, they hopefully they're through with me and now there's uh, somebody working for the police department. But when that doesn't go their way, it'll be somebody else. Uh You know, so just because they jump around picking on people doesn't make it so. And that's all they've done to me for a long time. And it hadn't stopped me. I'm going to live. And I'm going to enjoy life, and I do. And everybody that I come in contact with, you know, we have a good time. And I'm going to keep that up. That's just me. And... But I can't control what the other side does. I can't control anybody else out there in this world. 
I can control Terry, you know, and my control is, you know, I thank the good Lord that I'm here today. I thank the good Lord that you're here today, that my wife's sitting over there and that Mr. Andrew's sitting right here, you know, and hopefully we're going to spread something that people need to hear. Just because it's coming from the defense side of this, that's how they're supposed to work, but it's not true. Well, I appreciate you uh, allowing us to come in here and, and answer some of, some of the difficult questions of the different accusations that people have made. Sure, and I, I thank you for asking. Yeah. And I don't have a problem with telling you the truth about it. I've always done that. I've been on several podcasts, and I got the same truth to tell. One thing that our parents taught us growing up as kids, uh, one thing you'll find out about the truth, and you ask them, well, what's that? It doesn't change. I, and I have told the same truth because that's all I know to tell. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll, I'll, I only know what I've heard from the police department and what I see in the trials. And then I formed my own opinion. And if it was anything different, I'm man enough to tell you. And if I thought them boys was innocent, I am man enough to tell you. And I've never seen, seen it yet. Well, before we come to a close, is there anything that, final thoughts or anything that you'd like to say? Yeah, box full of nightmares. It's my story that I shared, me and my cousin put this together. I, I did the journaling, she did the writing. Uh, you can, it's available on Amazon. If you want to read something you probably didn't know, it might be in that book. And it is about this case. So go to Amazon, order your book, and catch up on this case. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> for everybody listening, uh, this has been my interview with Terry Hobbs, and this is uh, kind of a promotional thing for the documentary that we're working on, me with Andrew Dodge, uh, If Trees Could Talk. And we're going to get into, uh, we're going to deep dive and kind of get the record straight on everything with related to this case and related to the accusations towards Terry. And uh, we have a Patreon going on right now. We're about to start a uh, bunch of other stuff where you guys can help promote this project. And uh, there's lots of goodies that you can get from uh, director signed DVDs to even books signed by Mr. Terry right here. So thank you and uh, see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Uneasy Train Explorers Club podcast. This podcast is the product of Putrid Productions, which also produces my YouTube channels, Cinema's Underbelly, where I analyze and review extreme underground cinema, as well as my channel, Murderbilia Show and Tell, where I share pieces of true crime relics from my personal collection and tell the stories behind them. Additionally, Putrid Productions also has its own distribution label, Vile Video Productions, where I release my films as well as the movies of other filmmakers within the extreme horror underground. So if you want to keep the putrefication going, make sure to check out these other endeavors, as well as keeping a lookout for upcoming podcast episodes. Till next time, I'm Jonathan Doe, and this is the Uneasy Terrain Explorers Club podcast.